1: This is One Heat Minute.
0: Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. These look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven here. Robbery, homicides, take it. Give me all you got! This and... Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop
1: guys like me a podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. The 1995 crime opus, Heat, is a movie that we've been unpacking chronologically from minute one to now, minute 166. My guest today is the only guest on the entire series, whose name appears in the minute that they're here to talk about. It is with great pleasure and honor, <laughs> uh, uh, and and uh, it's just absolutely insane that this is happening. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the amazing author behind this incredible opus, Michael Mann. Michael Mann, welcome to One
0: Heat Minute. Great, thanks very much. I'm very flattered that you're doing this.
1: <laughs> well, well, I'm very, uh, I'm very happy that you actually heard about its existence while we were doing it.
0: I did. I heard about it in, um, I heard about it in New York about, about four months ago, five months ago, and uh, it sounded com- completely insane in a, in a totally wonderful way. So. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much for that. That's the highest possible compliment that I can get from you. Completely insane. I do have to thank Bill Ibiri, um, who I believe brought it to your attention uh, at that time. So, thank you so much. Look, the normal format of the show would be for us to, you know, watch a minute, whether that's uh, remotely, watch uh, the final minute of the movie, and the listeners will listen along to the the audio grab of that minute, um, but I think I'm going to forego that because there's only one person in the world who maybe has watched this movie more than me um, and that's you so uh, I don't think we need to watch the minute um, I might pause ever so briefly so the people at home who are listening to this can listen along uh, but then we can come back and talk about the final moment um, of your you know, your 1995 epic heat um, uh, together
0: Terrific, good
1: So Michael this final swelling soaring moment underscored by Moby's God moving over the face of waters um I believe East of Aviation in LAX is exactly where it where it took place Can you tell us a little bit about you know you talked about retrofitting this entire narrative really around this moment And so you know taking this the the grand scale and sort of making it beautifully intimate and graceful in these final moments can you talk about like what unlocked the rest of the narrative for you for this particular moment this this in this interaction this engagement
0: yeah it's kind of the difference between between contradiction and counterpoint um and and what 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 occurred to me i don't know i don't recall the exact sequence it occurred to me but it's kind of reverse-engineered in in this sense that uh, Neil Macaulay is fortunate enough to be passing out of existence in the short time we all have um, with nothing on the other side of it, but passing out out of existence with the only other person in the universe of this film with whom he has um, a a, a very deep rapport and very unique, in the two of them, Hannah and Vincent, in that, in that, both of them are, um, are are totally conscious. They're both completely self-aware. There's no games. There's no self-deception. There's no, there's no just kind of drifting through life with a number of ambitions that go fulfilled, a whole bunch go unfulfilled, and then by the time you wake up to the fact that they're unfulfilled, it's <laughs> too late because you're too old, and then that's too bad. And and there's no none of that blindness. They have. Almost no filters, uh, as as each man uh, as, as as each man takes in, uh, you know, his existence in the present moment, as well as what's before him, um, what's made him the way he is, and for 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 both of these guys, uh, the real important thing is that who they uh, who they were determines how they are now, and how they are now. Is determining what's going to happen to them. So Macaulay is is fortunate enough to to pass to die with you know in in a very close contact with the guy who's with whom he has the most rapport in the again in the artificial limited universe of of, of of the motion picture. At the one and the same time, this is the man who killed him. Yes. And leading. And and that confrontation, that combat between the two of these men, is um, is something that we had two different states of mind about, and that's totally intentional, and constructed. And why I say it's contrapuntal in this sense that um, we're invested in, most invested in Hannah. Uh, when we're in the Hannah story, we're not 50% with Hannah. We're 100% with Hannah. We want to know what's going to happen. We want Hannah to 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 intercept Macaulay. We want that to happen. At the same time, when we're with McCauley, we want him to escape with Edie. Uh, we, don't want it, we don't want him to stop for Wayne Grove. There's very good reasons why he stopped for Wayne Grove. We're just taking it kind of in reverse. Um, we want him to escape. And... Um, and we we'll want that 100 to happen, and our investment in it is emotionally, psychologically, philosophically is is also at at a, at 100%. So then the question became, why do that, and can can you bring audiences into those uh, kind of kind not contradictory but contrapuntal states of mind? Because if one can, then you have uh, something that kind of lives in a way that sustains in memory as opposed to stories that totally uh, uh, end and then they're resolved and then they're forgotten or maybe a small piece of poignance is missing. And I'm moved, I moved by Vivaldi, I'm moved by Box It's not accidental that that I was interested in constructing it. But from that, From kind of the genome of this end conflict, Uh, you know, working working backwards, it 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 had to be the the culmination of who each man is um, that's driven him to to this to this moment. You know, Hannah does not deceive himself. He's ruined these marriages. He's obsessed with hunting. All I am is who I'm going after. Yes, he he says that. and that's totally true. Macaulay elected to live by uh, by an inflexible kind of catechism that you that he's found what he's after, which is not here in the United States. It's something in Fiji, something he found in the magazine. It doesn't really matter what it is, <laughs> but it's an ideation of a an, an of ideation kind of, of a,
1: an ideation of an island fantasy. Yeah, no, it's, it, it and, I
0: think and, and so, and so he, is, he is, with a brutal you know, uh, 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 kind of discipline, uh, he is, reduces himself. He wants to reduce risk, and that has to do with being anonymous and not having connections. So he's correctly analyzed his, the circumstances of his life, the objective, the human condition he has to have to achieve this which is, which is to, which is is a calculation about risk, reduce risk. Who was that? Who was that bank robber? I don't know. He was kind of middle-aged. What did he look like? Well, he was kind of a gray suit, white shirt, gray hair. That's all I can tell you. That's everybody and anybody and nobody and have no, have no attachments. He's breached his own rules that he set for himself with Edie. And because he did that, um, he, he, and, he, and 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 had a, this passion that was supposed to happen later is suddenly happening now in the foreground of the temporal track of his life, and suddenly going anywhere, some island in Fiji, doesn't mean a thing if she's not going to go with him. <laughs> yes, and he almost you know, cuts his opens his chest, and he has to get he he has to get out what he's thinking, and he does, and then she agrees to go with him. So all of a sudden, the whole ordered set of uh, of laws and rules and physics of his life has been cast aside, and he's being spontaneous and it's working. Yes. So suddenly, spontaneity and and emotionality and intuition and instinct is taken over and it's succeeding and it's bringing in his foreground, what, what he desires. Consequently, as he's leaving, he no longer has navigation. Yes. He's a ship without a rudder. And and that's why he's vulnerable to the allure of going after Wengrove, which is bait that that Hannah set up.
1: Such, such an... Hannah ins-
0: knows that Neil is Smart to go for it because Hannah doesn't know about about Edie except for what he was told in the coffee shop scene. So Hannah's given up that it's going to even happen. But that allure of of um, of 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 vengeance on Wingrove for all the damage he causes is uh, takes Neil, uh, who's now emotionalized, and uh, that's that's why he deviates. And that then when Hannah sees a woman alone in a car in a state of anxiety. And Neil had told him about a woman. A woman. Um, He just intuit that this is where he is. That's what drives us to the ending.
1: Yeah, I I was just going to say, when I originally conceived of this idea and was working through it, I didn't realize uh, what would be the most sought-after minute for people to want to come and talk to to us about and unpack on this show and obviously you know it could be the opening the, the brilliance of the opening high some of vincent's wonderful and quotable uh, interrogation scenes obviously the centerpiece of the film uh being being the coffee uh, house conversation at Kate manolini's but i was struck by the minutes that you just mentioned that neil uh, surrendering to instinct as opposed to his program and then him wrestling with what is program, what is instinct, what is emotion in the tunnel scene. The tunnel scene was one of the most sought after scenes to speak about on the entire show for I think a lot of the reasons that you just sort of summed up um, in, in what we were talking about.
0: Yeah, and I, I think lighting well, issues are, are 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 quite brilliant and uh in a, in a way, we all are much more than we know. We're, we are we're 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 very very smart baboons in the sense that we have a <laughs> lot of animal instinct that we're not aware of, but we perceive way more than than we than, we're, than, than we can clock co- cognitively, and and so the history of how Neil got to that moment in the tunnel when the light gets bright, uh, I think people carry a lot of that. With them, they don't. They can't. They don't. They couldn't necessarily analyze it in language, but I think they understand it, and um, they understand that he's with her. And it's not just keep going, get away. It's a lot more than that. It's. It's. We understand that the pull and why he's vulnerable to uh, to to the pull of you know, as he is in, in that moment.
1: In that moment, I I was lucky enough to speak to uh, a film critic and editor of RogerEber.com, Matt Zola Zeitz, and he said of Robert De Niro, one of your stars, that there is maybe nothing more powerful in American cinema than putting a camera in front of Robert De Niro's face and just watching him think. Can you talk a little bit about working with, you know, the man, the Neil Macaulay, <laughs> the Neil Macaulay of this piece and working with him and 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 helping him sort of, I, I believe you said before to to paraphrase, seek the character, sort of get inside himself, and then seek and explore beyond that character. Can you talk a little bit about that for us?
0: Sure. The the uh, and by the way, that that moment we we uh, we 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 shot it one night, and uh, after we shot it, we both Bob and I both know. I said we we didn't we didn't get it, and then we went back and shot it a second night, and. You know, it still wasn't there, and it was on the third night that we went back. And it, it's, you know, and we we knew what we were after. And on the third night, you know, I got it, and I just, you know, the moment I got it, said, I said, you know, we, it's there. And it's it's all, and it 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 requires it requires exactly what you said. It requires him thinking, and and but it's what you're thinking about, you know. And before we shot the scene with, um, with Edie on the, on that ridge over the, over the Pacific, in the Palisades, um, where, where he opens his heart, he forces himself to, 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 he impels himself to, to inside himself, pull out his heart and say, here's, nothing means anything anymore if I'm not with you, you know, if you're not with me. Um... You know, we were lighting, and then I, you know, then Bob asked if I would come into his motorhome, and I, I did, and, and he said, tell me what I'm, th- what, what am I, he knew what he was thinking, but he said, you know, hey, this is about fine, I go, what am I thinking, why am I, you know, how desperate is this, you know, and we talked about it some more, and then um, then I went away, the lighting continued, <laughs> back in the motor, and then we had another conversation about it, you know, because he was so determined, to bring himself to that what moment of of uh, of you're you going to you know you you are going to explode if you can't get this out. Yes. Um, it's not just that this life's not worth living if you're not with me. It's uh, but a guy who thought you know he's a double zero with the needle moving the other way. All you know for him this is not normal. Oh, I met a girl on a date and I really think I really like her. This is a whole <laughs> different thing. I mean the. the Real-world contrast between between the self-abnegation and the the uh, vacuity of of imposed the kind of monkish existence that he imposed on himself, and what and what that 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 heat of 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 being with this woman and what that means, uh, that attraction. It's it's uh, it's limbic systems. It's you know it, intellect it's 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 love it's um, testosterone it's everything together and, um, and he has to you know so he 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 was obsessive about finding exactly what should be in in his mind and then the words take care of themselves when you're an actor when you're a great actor like Mctonero like yes he no, I mean not what I mean by that is that De Niro knows that the words will take care of himself. Al knows the words will take care of himself. You know, you learn it stone cold, and you forget it because it's just going to come. It's what's going on inside of you that that requires that build.
1: And and especially for for Robert, as you said, the alchemy of his in, like of his inner turmoil is completely off kilter in that scene. You've seen him firing almost with the, you know, with the precision of an engine you know all those things like you said instinct um you know his testosterone like muting you know like his monkish existence mutes love and in that scene it's just you know let's let's get all the ingredients to this experiment this explosive experiment let's just shake it up and he, he is literally bursting in that in that moment and i think that that's what you know speaking of a terrific you know wordless performance amy Brennerman's performance in sort of that blurred foreground uh is just is is something to behold as well? In reaction, in contrast, right. to this uh, you know to his turmoil behind her.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, she uh, there's uh, she's somebody. LA is a really easy place to not find your way. Yes, and uh, uh, it, it, it's always it always has been um, a kind of a virtual city. Again, London in a funny way similar. You you there's pockets of culture. It's not it's not like New York. It's not like I moved from this neighborhood to that neighborhood, and there's an entire subculture that I know I'm going to live within. Yes. Uh, L.A. is alienated in, in, a, in a kind of in, in a landscape and geography, too. Not so much anymore because too many people from New York moving here. So consequently, the whole city has now become completely overpopulated. It's almost like these little tendrils of, of light, which is like cars on a freeway at night, that are the arteries that connect one mode of existence to another mode of existence. And, um, you know, she's selling books, I and mean, she's, uh, and, and doesn't probably steam herself very highly. Yes. And, uh, she's quite modest. What has, what has, romance, what has sexuality been for Neil Macaulay before he meets her? And, and there's a, it, it it's, it's been strictly transactional. Yes. Physical kind yes. of impersonal. And there's a, there's a great prison poem, uh, that was that was written. Um, I forgot who wrote it, but it, I tell you what, it is, it, it's it's the man's too sure, the woman's too easy, the pace is too fast, the love is too short. That's been his experience, and and, and then to meet Edie, it's you know obviously it's night and day. <laughs>
1: Yeah, she's 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 uh, loving, tender, open, and warm. You know uh, that amazing balcony scene with the you know the flood of lights of L.A. And he says, she says, you get lonely, and he says, I'm alone. I'm not lonely. You, and the power of her response, going, yeah, I get lonely. Just the candor, the openness. It's like it's an authenticity he probably hasn't ever experienced. Uh, if if we're talking about that that prison poetic consequence, you know, this woman's too easy; they're too transactional. But she's, you know, she's she's sincerity incarnate. You know, she can't help but be that, and that's great about Amy's performance. It's just that it just well, lives in she,
0: real life. She's a, a person. person. has a past. has a present. She has feelings. She has emotions. She has character. Um, and and what she's unaware of is that is that he's a stick of dynamite. Yes, uh, he is. Is state raised. Um, he is dissociative, um, somewhat sociopathic, selectively sociopathic. Um, it really truly is. If it rains, you get wet. About everybody else who can get in the way of, between his crew and his crew's objectives. Doesn't matter who they are. I mean and, and and he's denied himself any really intense human you know, a normal human reaction. So he may look like a normal guy. He the last that's the last thing he is. And that's you know, that's where that's where the real kind of intensity. So he's not like anybody she ever met.
1: No. And that the kitchen scene, you know. One of the one of the coldest lines I think he says in the movie, you know, and and he's pretty cold, as you said, selectively sociopathic at times. I tell you what I don't do. I don't sell medals. It's just a it's a beautiful turn of phrase uh, as the writer of this film, but it's something. It's a line that haunts me when I watch their relationship unfold in this movie. I tell you what I don't do. I don't sell medals. So let's talk about the location, LAX. This and you said it was kind of this. You talked about it being LAX being a, a transient space, and I was really lucky. One of the preceding episodes that's going to be released just before before we have a chat is Reed Coleman, your co author of the upcoming prequel novel, talked about um, talked about you sort of enlightening him to spaces, uh, particularly spaces that sort of function as both being inside and outside spaces. So was that important for you? in the construction of this scene in this LA where it's like a transient space of this inside and outside space was that something you were thinking about consciously for constructing this final this final combat this final showdown
0: yeah it's critical Um, it's as much to me as we take in everything Uh, I mean as audience, as human beings we just take in everything yes and so everything has meaning which means if you're a, a, a director or I believe in in the work that I do anyway. That that everything should talk. Sometimes very quietly, but everything should talk. And a place should talk, and a space should talk. And the uh, the interesting I mean, there's a certain romance about airports at night uh, for some reason that I had all the way up through the '90s. I don't have it now, but I surely did that. And and it was about the you know the the lights on the. Uh, at the end of the runway, the the and, and I think what's attractive about it, what made it feel so transient to me, and and uh, the kind of space that could trigger a real kind of existential awareness, is because it's n- none of it is ergonomic. It's not about spaces that are designed to facilitate our bipedal bodies and how we move. It's got nothing to do with us. Yes. And and. Uh, the ends of runways okay or the or the apron on the approach of runways and that's why I was attracted to that uh, to uh, just you know literally like just before the runway those uh, those red and white checkered checkered houses and the the um, you know the Cast aluminum brackets for the lights and and uh, that 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 turn on. It's not about people. It's not places we drive, walk, sit, eat, sleep. It's, <laughs> it's not. completely about. It's just industrial, and and it's quite beautiful. But at the same time, it has uh, you know the, the allure is is something I'm not. I can't really you know kind of quantify it in language. But the allure has something to do with the fact that it's just not about us, and. um in its industrial kind of aesthetic, and in its utility. And uh, so that's why, and that was actually, you know, obviously we shot it, because it really was LAX. On top of that, we've got 747s coming in yes. every two and a half, three minutes. And those aren't visual effects, those are airplanes over <laughs> our heads. And the ground would shake and the noise was insane. And that's really where we were, you know, it, it and, and so it it rolls together, you know, you how how should I put it? It's like when you when you go know you've got the right place and then we we built a couple more of those red and white checkered houses that then were actually there. And and then you're shooting it and it's the middle of the night and these lights are going on and these planes are roaring overhead. You think you're doing something but you're not, you're just <laughs> standing in the shock right. Away. It's like as a director, it's kind of you know when you know, you know, like yes. this environment is the perfect place to encompass, you know, this the scene and to have the uh, in kind of a spherical way and you know, to have 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 the scene uh, you know, play out here. That uh, it, it was quite magical. It also happened to be the week that the Unabomber was threatening to <laughs> blow up LAX. Yes, that's and, what I've
1: read. I was actually about to ask you about that,
0: <laughs> which is. Kind of crazy, and coincidental because the guy who who uh, was very instrumental in in uh, in, in, in discovering the unibomber and breaking that story for CBS was Lowell Bergman, who Al Pacino plays an insider.
1: Absolutely.
0: You know, and and we were a, and of course you couldn't do anything like that now. But
1: there, there has been a rumor, and I'd love to if you could confirm it that um, it was a, a few extra stakes for the guys in the air traffic control room to direct a few. Uh, uh, passages of time to get you some quiet on those runways. Is that is that just a rumor that I've read, or is that uh, has got a little little taste of fact? No, no, no
0: that's, that's not true. That's a fiction. They were they were just friendly, and we did stop and we were very nice to them. You know, yes. we, we did stop in and say hi and thank them and everything else. But no, nobody nobody brought them mistakes. <laughs> I had to reroute. I had I did get traffic to reroute when we were doing Mohicans because we couldn't have contrails in the sky. Yes. Today, you know, for $1,000, it doesn't matter it's in the sky digitally. You just take it out. Yes. But then back in 92, that wasn't the case. And so we, we uh, did get the air, air traffic controllers to reroute uh, some flights that so wouldn't have contrails in the sky and, you know, it would we'll close the highways and all that.
1: So let's get to... The incred- we just spoke about him, the incredible Al Pacino who you work with on The Insider, which is also a-, a stunning masterpiece of a film that could absolutely, in my mind, be held up to the scrutiny of a minute-by-minute podcast, but I won't be doing that. <laughs> I won't be doing that. I'll leave that to an- another um, Michael Mann obsessive to-, to carry the reins there. But can you talk about him just delivering, again, a magnificent, wordless performance where he's like his face is like a tsunami of all of those different emotions and awareness.
0: And Sure. I mean, it's, it's, Al is, Al is, you know, he's a great, great artist. He's, he's a, he's a complete, he's a complete genius in, in, um, in, in, in how he brings character into himself. Um, he, all of his performance is, um, in, it, I'm going to give you an example. He Al learns dialogue, Stone Cold, two weeks before he's going to, before the, before you're going to shoot it. Yes. And the reason he does it is because he wants to dream the scene. He wants to wake up in a morning where you're half conscious, kind of thinking about it, and it, is playing in his head. And so, what 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 he does is a veil. Avail himself of all of the different states of of consciousness that we all experience as as people, as human beings, and it is such an honest process, uh, such an honest artistic process with Al, uh, because it, it permeates all of them, and and so consequently, there's a, there's a couple of uh, a couple of characteristics that that of of the of the honesty and the high artistic integrity of working with an artist like Al Pacino. One is if you imagine somebody who, who does that, has the ability to do it. Yes. Almost nobody else has. He has the ability to do it. You, you would imagine the following. He has tremendous courage. Al well, you know, he, he is not, he, he will hesitate not for an instant to can, can kind of, you know, play high E on the violin, is the an analogy he uses, or <laughs> walk a tightrope without a net. And, um... And, 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 and if, and if it's a complete, if, if, if a new idea on take five, is a complete catastrophe, he doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> that was terrible. the next, so, you know, so, so, um, you know, we had a couple of, you know, so when we would do something, Al would usually nail it on take five, six or seven, right? Yeah. When we... We got it, you know. He'd say, uh, "You know, let me do a wild one." I said, "Go ahead." <laughs> you know, and what that meant was that he would throw all the programs out. We would start the scene, and Al would ha- intentionally have no idea where this is going to go. And sometimes they were horrible. <laughs> sometimes they were brilliant, you know, and. Um, and the only time we ran into a jam is when the actor on the other side, if it was a character actor or somebody who was coming in, you know, we're now we're in our you know 80th day of principal photography. We're doing this all the time on every scene, and we, in one instance in particular, I forgot to tell the, I forgot to warn the actor that. By the way, this means that we're not, we're just, we're just going to see what happens. We're just going to be completely <laughs> improvisational. And I did, I forgot to tell him. And then Al lets loose, and. uh... <laughs> <laughs> and it was the where scene he's, where he's throwing Hank Azaria around who wasn't had no idea that Al was going to bend his wrist back toss him in a chair <laughs> and then deliver that whole monologue showing well it, uh, I think so, Hank
1: I, mean, I, I think Hank Azaria has talked about that and it's so wonderful to hear like what? What? How? How? Uh, we've only sort of heard from his side that he it was improvisational, but it's so magnificent, I guess, that you were so dialed into his process, and you guys were so comfortable in this rhythm that, you know, you always sort of threw one, impo- you know, couple of improvisationals once you knew what you had, just to just throw everything out, just to try and be organic and 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 lean into whatever the feeling of the that the energy of that space was giving you in that moment.
0: Yeah, and you know, I mean, the, the core of. But Al completely embraced who who Hannah was, yes. and and uh, that that he he was uh, he he because it, it has a, certain, a real for some obvious reasons it has a real correlation to who an actor like Al is in life, which which is that he was obsessive. Hannah's obsessive about driven to to uh, to as a detective to figure out. And then to to, to app, app, apprehend, to hunt, uh, big game, and in that as a detective, he's no different than any than a, uh, you know than a than a I don't know a heavyweight fighter who who's not who's not doesn't have anticipatory anxiety about getting in the ring. He can't wait to get into the ring. Yes. Uh, or an actor who can't wait to Al can't wait to get on stage. Um and And the more challenging the higher the mountain, the more difficult it is, the more alluring it is, the more you go after it yes, and so that that line in which he says, "All I am is who I'm going after he 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 knows what he's done i mean it it dominates it dominates his life, and it's not that act that uh, that um that drive is not about to serve and protect if if you had Hannah, and for that matter, you could have L too, and you said, you know, what, tell me what, tell me what is the most powerful motivator of all the motivations any human being has, and all the motivations you have for doing this work, this quest that you're on, you know, you'd be only allowed to tell me one, what's the most powerful one, it's all I am is who I'm going after, it's, 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 uh, it's hunting, Yes. And, of course, he has a moral compass. Uh, More than, you know, Neil Macaulay does it. Hannah has a moral compass. There is right and wrong. Not only that, like an actor, he intakes his emotional reaction to heinous crimes, and he uses that. Like an actor, will use sometimes very ugly things to make himself sharper, to make himself more intuitive, to make himself to himself be able to guess or see something that that defies analysis, that's not about language, it's just an instinct, and it's like you suddenly find yourself in one moment in time hunting Neil McCauley, you find yourself in the compulsory casino, the casino where you have to bet. Yes. And you have to bet in the next five seconds or ten seconds, and that's when that intuition that's where that intuition will 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 click in. So the guy who tracked Neil McCallie down when he realized that Neil McCallie had made the people who were tailing them, and, pro- and probably just like a detective, that Neil McCallie probably has his employment records is going to make on Hannah, and he has this intuitive brilliance off the moment with Justine when he's bereft. Yes. Uh to that motivates him to go do something you know, we're calling him <laughs> and he these stops him and then he has that coffee conversation. And you know, and and the it's like where 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 do these ideas come from in our lives? Where where does this brilliant insight come from when when you suddenly you, you suddenly know you, you don't deduce a pat you know, do you don't, you don't deduce through pattern recognition. It suddenly occurs to you. And, uh, and that's it's, it's not magical. It's, it's causative, but it, it comes from, you know, what Buddhists call karma in a funny kind of a way. Because it, it's, if you had a, if you had a microscope that could examine down to find microscopic levels, causality. What's this has caused that? That's caused the other thing in our lives. There, there aren't. There's no magic. There's no But there truly is causality. Um, And that that makes these moments happen. And then he's he knows he he knows what he's there in the coffee shop. He knows why he's in the coffee shop. And Hannah knows and and and, sorry, and Neil McCauley knows why he's in the coffee shop. They're both doing the same thing. And it's uh and that's something that I never never occurred to me, it was told to me by Charlie Adamson who killed the real Neil McCauley in nineteen sixty three. And and uh and he spoke about Macaulay in glowing terms and would not hesitate for a second to blow him out of his socks. <laughs> and and um, what he had, you know, I asked him well, when you were, what was, why did, he always wanted to talk to highline these, particularly the really good ones. When he had the opportunity, because they'd arrest the guy, but they didn't really have evidence but but Charlie would use it to spend an hour with the guy and have a completely civil conversation and 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 his answer was very much like an actor he said because I would be picking up things that I didn't even know I was picking up i would I could tell by his body language where he kept his hand, how careful he was um he would he'd be revealing things to me about his life without knowing that he was. I could see how you know if he had a weak if, if there was a weakness if there was a if there was oh a, a, a vanity. Um, yes. So I would know how he thinks because I may want I may need to do one or two things. I may need to suddenly make a decision in a critical moment. And I've got to rely on my intuition, and I know that subconsciously I have picked up things, and that's going to contribute to my intuitively motivate my intuitively triggered decision about what I am going to do. You know that's so. That's why. That's that's why the uh, anyway. That's why. That's why he had coffee with me. and it happened in the Belden Deli on Lincoln Avenue in Chicago.
1: A nice stand-in uh, as uh, for Belden Deli is Kate Manarini's, of course. No longer open. No longer open. A ruining a. Uh, uh, the photo opportunity for all insane Heat fans in perpetuity not to get a photo at that particular table in that diner.
0: All all the good locations in stuff are gone. It's terrible. But the books the bookstore's gone. That Edie worked in the belt the Broadway Deli where he meets Edie, uh, which was terrific, is gone. And and. uh uh, the restaurant on Wilshire Boulevard, where Macaulay uh, Kate Manleys, where, where Macaulay and uh, and Hannah have that coffee shop scene, is also gone. And these are favorite restaurants in Los Angeles, and they're all gone for the same reason: because a landlord got greedy <laughs> and raised the rent. And they were very profitable places, and 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 consequently, no restaurant would ever open up there again because they knew that there was a hostility by everybody in the neighborhood who went through. <laughs> so the, the Cape Mandalini site has been, un- it's a full restaurant right on Beverly Hills, on Wilshire Boulevard, and it has not had a tenant for probably five years. God. Devastating. So,
1: Moby's God moving over the face of waters. Um, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to see Heat uh, in a in a sort of boutique theater in Sydney this year. I saw there a 35 mil print of the original, the Warner Brothers theatrical release. Um, and only a few months earlier, right. I saw a, a gorgeous 4K print. And both of the final scenes, this, this final minute in particular that we're talking about, the roar of the planes is insanity. It's just, it triggers, you know, uh, goosebumps all over your body. And this score, it just really is it's a magnificent choice for this song. Can you talk about, you know, you know you've know, you collaborated with Moby over over several films now, but can you talk about this particular moment and needing this, and, and feeling like this particular transcendent score was, you know, was how it was going to elevate and enhance this scene?
0: Not really, because it's just, it's one of those, you know, uh, I was, it's critically important what that piece of music was. I mean, if you put yourself in my shoes, it'd be... Of course, it's critically important. What that piece of music is, and that's a, and that's a state. What state of mind? What feeling does it drop you into? Yes. And um, and Moby, you know, and uh, there was, it had a it had a power, and um, it almost reminded me of gospel. You know. Yes. And uh, the last thing I am is religious, but nevertheless, it 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 uh, it really. Many religious things are terribly, terribly moving, and this was just a powerful piece. And the um, movie was around quite a bit when we were, you know, in, in post. Um, we had an insane schedule, and uh, I, would, I could we were editing twenty-four hours with two different shifts of editors and assistant editors, and and I would fall in at strange, you know, times and leave at strange times. i could come in <laughs> three, four in the morning or something to put in a long day. And I find Moby asleep, you know, under the editing machine or something. So he was, you know, it was it was kind of an open door, um, on a and a rather large editing facility because we 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 uh, I think we edited the movie in sixteen weeks, which is short. Um, and um, I don't know. I can't really tell you much about it except that, you know, it was uh, you, you know when, you know when you know you know when it drops you into. I can imagine being fresh to it, and as if I'm audience and experiencing it, and what I'm feeling. That's a struggle to push yourself for a director to push himself to that, but you have to. And uh, that was it. Us- but usually for me, I have the, those key pivotal pieces of music before I'm sh- while I'm shooting or before I'm shooting. Yes, <clears throat> but I didn't in this case.
1: I think I think Chris Christopher Tapley who writes for Variety spoke about a time that he met you he was on he's on the show and he talked about your office uh, uh at one time just being a wall of CDs a wall of music you know uh that that you could pull from at any given time you had a very eclectic and uh you know thorough library um there that you could pull from so y- most of the time you're pretty prepared and, and know what you've got this one it was a little bit more organic you're saying
0: well, I, I was—I I, the eclecticism of the music choices in, in *Heat* was by design, and it, it's no less designed than, say, the 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 way that uh, oh, I don't know, Mohicans is unified by that by the uh, by the Celtic music yes. that's in it, it's from a contemporary Irish folk song called *The Gale, Gael* G A E L, and but the eclecticism was designed because. This movie is dropping you into these different lives, and when you're in Christian Hurless's life, I want you to, uh, I want you to be, you know, zoned into that conduit of this uh, this kind of postmodern guy who has no, the exact opposite of Neil. He has he has no no rules, no <laughs> nothing, you know. But he seems to intuitively, by charm, just kind of you know manages to survive everything he he's by the way in the novel that you refer to he's uh he's he's a major character um
1: i was and, uh, I'll, I'll i'll hold yeah. i' I'll, hold, I'll i'll hold my excitement and final question around the novel um in for just a moment i'll let you finish that but i, I would just i would just say that i don't i think you can unequivocally say that if if anyone is listening to this show and particularly if anyone's been listening to this show um since the beginning, you know, we're more than 166 episodes by far with some bonus episodes and live episodes and whatnot. I think we're, we're almost certain of your intentionality as a filmmaker and we admire it so deeply and have been scrutinizing it for a couple of years now. So uh, in, in just this work alone, um, some magnificent, magnificent choices to change the moods, change it up for each character.
0: And, and when you're, and to have, yeah, to have that, uh, you know, to to bring you into that certain track. Uh, now, Elliot Goldenthal's score is is brilliant. And if I have one regret, there's a couple of places that I wasn't, uh, that I was like, I should have used some of the cues that he had. I had a choice, and instead I used some other stuff. On the other hand, Lisa Gerard uh, has five cues that are used yes uh, throughout the movie. And it's, it's just, qu- her work is, was a revelation to me, and it's, it's you know it's, it's twenty some odd years ago now, you know, twenty four years ago, but it was uh, it was really a revelation to to to, to hear it, and uh, it took me into that it, that that hard to access inner zone of a character, or, or offer the potential of possibly bring audience into that internal zone uh, of a character, and that's uh, what's that's what I, I try to do, and, and heard. Music was kind of an agent of that. So, By the time you get to the end cue, it's got to be everything, you know? It's got to be <laughs> yes. the
1: That That's what I was just about to say. So you've got, you know, all this, the, the agency, the access, you know, the, the Lisa Gerard cues are so phenomenal, I think, about the embrace of Vincent and the prostitute's mother, um, that scene in particular, um, all the way up to this moment. You know how that's and and in this moment that we're getting to talk about together, which is why we're sort of having this sprawling chat is you know it is that it is it it's the the collective weight that you're mounting on this moment of this epic you you're resting this epic on the shoulders of you know these two men and in some embrace, and then this absolutely glorious uh you know almost you know uh fresco neon fresco. Uh, designed by yourself and Dante, uh, lit by Dante Spinotti and designed by yourself of, you know, the silhouettes against the runway lights on one side and the city lights on the other um, in this strange transient space, not made for humans. Um, was Was that an image that you had in your head as... That had to be you were visualizing to get to this moment, or was that by design at the time when you're in the space?
0: That was you know, when you know I, I, had, I had I had imagined what that area might look like, and and and, and that was the first place I wanted to scout. And we went there and scouted it at night, and immediately it came to me that that's the end image. Um, that they'd be in rear shot and silhouette. Macaulay's dead. Hannah's standing there. Uh, here's this here's this here's this fractured moment of time in his life right now, and 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 there are these planes who don't the planes don't care about you they don't care about them these planes are coming in and the lights are getting brighter and then they're dimming again and uh, it's like the lights of the world go off you know and so for many reasons you know, and I confess I'm I'm, I'm Thinking about it, in you know, after the fact, for many reasons, it was, it was very apparent right there. This is this is the this is the scene. This is the uh, this is the how it's blocked. This Macaulay's has a certain uh, you know, posture, sitting there, not lying down. You know, but was sitting there, kind of kind of coming from a paeda and I want Hannah looking away into the distance, and at the these planes passing them by, bringing people living their lives, you know, know nothing of what's happened here you know, into, into a landing. And um, there's something else that's a little that, that's kind of the, you know my, my own internal language for some of this, and it has to do with, with time. Hannah exists in a, in a realm of time, and Neil never does. Um, and in the realm of real time, everything is chaotic. You know, uh, Life's a mess. Yes. Uh, and and uh, and Hannah's life's a mess. And and, and is living by by this um, almost Jesuitical with a lowercase J, this yes. kind of Jesuitical rigid doctrine. Um, and he's bringing he allows into his life only what he allows into his life. So his life is very organized and ordered as opposed to Hannah's. Um, And here Hannah is, another marriage ended, um, he's with this guy who's just died, you know, and he's here with the rest of us in this, in in the messy, chaotic, (laughs) you know. And so that's part of it too. And the way airports make us think of time, because we're living and we're entering a world of transience. So all of that is all of that is part of that. part of that. Uh, to me, anyway, it's part of that, what that image is about.
1: So I might ask just one uh, before we wrap up. I, I have to ask that that we now know. Uh, congratulations! You've got a you know your your uh, Michael Mann books publications exists. Uh, the first one, Hunting Larue, a uh, first book um, by Lane Shannon, is out, um, uh, which is a. a just simply unput downable, I think is probably the only thing I can use to describe it. Um, and an upcoming heat prequel novel. Can you tell people listening, uh, about what actually was the tipping point for you to say, no, I, I want to, I want to go back and I want to go back to this universe because for us who, and particularly for me as this obsessive doing this, uh, this exercise, um, I'm so pleased that you would want to go back, and this movie is it has a, a certain allure about it. So I'm really interested in about when was the moment that you said no. I think there's more here, and I think that a novel is is a good way to 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 capture that.
0: What what, what motivated is is what preceded the motivation, which is my inability to figure out how to do it. <laughs> the the um, you know, there's it's, it's such a it's such a strong dialectic with two protagonists. Uh, and each one antithetical to the other, and uh, and so the idea of what c- couldn't possibly be a sequel, uh, and in the prequel they haven't met each other. But then in working through it, at one point, I suddenly you know it occurred to me: now there is a way to do it, and here's how you here's how to do it. And uh, I'm not going to say what that is, but but it it uh, there was a way to bring the events of their that precede the movie, uh, in, in, into a conjunction with each other, and a way to carry on what those real past the concerns were um, in in the years that follow the movie. So the novel goes up to the movie, jumps over the movie, and then continues after the movie.
1: Well, I'm done to read it.
0: And the uh, <laughs> I'm with done. the uh, anyway, I'm done. so that's where. It's- we figured that we figured that out, and it, uh, so then it became viable. Otherwise, I wouldn't have you know done it. Uh,
1: I might just say, in wrapping up, because I've you know it's a it's an honor to speak to you. But one one thing I would just say for everyone listening, you know, this is going to be um, uh, one of the final episodes of One Heat Minute. Uh, so I just wanted to say, firstly because I'm talking to you, sir, Mr. Michael Mann, thank you um, so much uh, for being a part of the show now. Um, Thank you so much for this incredible, enduring piece of art. Um, And just to quote you, actually, to quote some of your uh, commentary you once wrote about your top 10, I believe it's cheekily a top 11 films of all time that you wrote for the BFI. Um, You know, some of the words you use to describe your favorite films of all time, I think... Uh, praise that could be heaped upon this masterpiece. You said of Battleship Potemkin that it's a collision of the antithetical composition of elements. You said of Apocalypse Now that it's a dark identity quest. It's sort of poetic and concrete. You talk about the grand scale of Citizen Kane. Uh, you talk about resplendent pathos and poetry in Beautiful. You talk about My Darling Clementine as near- perfection cinematically and formally uh, you talk about in passion of joan of arc you, you you praise the human experience visualized in the human face and in Peck and peckinpah's the wild bunch you talk about the poignancy of the last of so i just wanted to say thank you for this symphonic wonderful thing that i think encapsulates all of the things that you praise your top 10 favorite films of all time about so uh thank you so much for being a part of one eight minute and thank you so much
0: well you're very welcome and i and i really have to thank you for because when you when you work on something and it becomes uh it becomes it becomes it becomes it could alive the characters become alive you know what they were doing when they were seven eight nine ten eleven you know how they got where they are. You know what they're going to do. You hear their voices. You know what they're going to say. And then, and then, what is what is you know? Particularly when they ask, what they deal with those questions about. Well, what does my life mean? What am I doing now? They're the universal questions that everybody asks. And and if and if you're fortunate enough to have a story that can that can bring all these things out, you know, the whole of it becomes uh, it becomes alive and uh and it's 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 a piece of it's a work it's something that you worked at, and for somebody else to to be taken with it to the degree that you've been taken with it is uh, it's a, there is a, a a very you know kind of humble gratification that I that uh, that I feel towards this whole show. Yeah, I, I think I think listen, I think what you've done on for this film is great. Uh I I everybody who makes a film, you know, they want it to sustain, they want it to sustain in people's consciousness and uh and for a number of reasons, some of which I know about, some of which I don't know about, uh you know, heat apparently has. I have people, you know, who might recognize me in the airport and come up and start quoting lines. And it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it happens about, you know, once or twice a month. It's, it's, it is, it is surprising that it's endured, um, you know, it's endured as long. There's a lot of passion that every single person who worked on this film put into it. All the actors, they, you feel indulged me for a moment is that the, uh, is that for the actors working with the actors? It was kind of like an ensemble, and uh, John Voight would show up on a day off because he wanted to see what Bob and Al were going to do in a scene that they might have had together. And Krisha uh, Hurlis wanted to, wanted to see, you know, a dialogue scene with Bob and John Voight um as as nate um and this this that was that was the feeling about it we all felt that we we were, we were working and it was, it was great work and we're all working i wouldn't say hard because it was hard work but it doesn't mean anything. i mean it was it just felt like man i don't want to be anywhere else on the planet earth right now at this moment in time than on this set making this movie <laughs> you know that's what this was.
1: and and to tell you and to tell you how we receive it, there's no other podcast or project that I would ever dedicate two years of my life to in this way than this movie. And talking about this movie with the incredible cachet of guests, um, you know, some of which, you know, Dante Spinotti, you know, um, Pasquale Buber, may rest in peace, was on the show um, prior to his passing. Wonderful filmmakers, critics, actors. Um, uh, just uh, we all are drawn together around this fire um, of heat it's just uh, it's an incredible piece of art and and even getting to talk to you, it's, it's, it's a huge honour, but particularly the, the entire crew that have been part of this, this show in every iteration of it um, have just loved it and love being a part of it. And I'm, I'm personally really proud that when the show ends, it will just exist and, and we'll, that you know, there'll be more Heat fans because it will endure and, and they, they might tangle with us and, and come and join our little party that will just sit there forever um, as well alongside your work and, and framing it and talking about it. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's excellent. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. I would say that there's another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner, but I told you I was never going back. Yeah.